And I am Brian Kissel. And you are back with Rational Face Podcast, where every week we strive to keep Mormonism weird. Absolutely. Hey, hey Brian, before we jump in, I wanted to uh, kind of review. So, so um, perhaps you could kind of talk about uh, the, the Leahona Children's Foundation as in our last episode, we were, we were kind of talking about exactly what that is and what our goals are. And maybe you could kind of briefly discuss what that is and then and then kind of share how we're doing. Rational Face has a blog, actually along with the Cultural Hall podcast. They've advertised this a little bit and Mormon Matters, Dan Weatherspoon at Mormon Matters advertised this as well. But we have this project to support a Liahona Children's Foundation stake. And what that means is we're supporting 100 malnourished kids, malnourished children. And in order to do that, we have to raise $6,000. And uh, the last update I got was really, really good. Um, We are up to $7,125 from readers and listeners contributing to the project. So (laughs) it's actually pretty awesome. (laughs) That is awesome. That is so cool. So congratulations to all you listeners and and readers that uh, contributed. Uh, yeah, so, so Brian, what, what happens with that, dude? Are we going to like, like are we going to try to do another one, or or did we just reach our goal and and that's what we're doing, or or what was happening with that? Well, we reached our goal, and uh, since we got seven thousand, we got six thousand was the goal, and we. Uh, we actually, there's an, if you look on the Adopt a Stake website or page on the Leahona Children's Foundation website, um, there's some other, there's a bunch of other stakes, and some of them, one, I can't remember which one it was, was short $1,000. So, bam, we've, co- we've covered that one too, uh, yeah. in helping get it what it needs. And so, I think we should just let it ride to the end of the year. I bet there's, I'm certain there's more people that have been waiting and maybe they want to talk with their family more about how much they should give, whether they should do that. Actually, my siblings, we just talked about instead of giving gifts to each other because it's pretty, I mean, we, we live kind of far apart. My sister's down in Texas. I'm out here in Ohio. My two brothers are in Utah. And so by the time you actually ship something to someone, you know, you end up giving them a gift card or something like that. So the shipping's not that bad and it's not very personal or whatever. So we decided to, um, to all contribute to this too. So I'm sure there's more people that want to contribute. So let's just let it go and see where it goes. And, and the surplus will be put towards another stake. If we can get another $6,000 and support a whole nother stake. Great. If not, you know, let's see what happens. Wonderful. That's awesome. So, uh, so from that, um, we do have a, an announcement or uh, some information to share, and that'll be at the end of the podcast about a special Sunstone symposium that's coming up. But before that, let's let's yeah, let's perfect. get into the episode. And today we have another uh, episode with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Um, she's one of the Mormon sex therapists that we talked to, and she answers three more questions. One is about inherited sexual trauma. 
Another one is about managing nudity. And the third question revolves around the sexuality of a single person, a single as in not married. Uh, so it's lots of good information. So let's jump right in. Hi, everyone. We here at Rational Faith are with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Uh, I'm Laurel. And I'm Brian. Um, and we are on our fourth podcast asking questions to uh, Dr. Finlayson Fife. And, real quick, if you just want to give another brief intro. Sure. So, uh, I'm Jennifer Finlayson Fife. I live uh, outside of Chicago, Illinois, and I have a private practice uh, where I work primarily with. LDS couples on relationship and sexuality issues, and um, I'm married and have three kids, and I'm happy to be here. Excellent. And also, we'll have a link to this on our page. Don't you also have uh, online courses that are on sale right now? Uh, that's right. I teach. Um, I have several courses that I teach for LDS couples on relationships and sexuality, um, and I am doing a promotion right now for Christmas where they're 20% off, and... Um, and you can learn more about them on my website, but um, there's something that people can purchase as a Christmas gift if they want to. Sex for Christmas. <laughs> no better gift. The gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's just get started. We have a couple questions, and if you're just new to these podcasts, what we do is uh, people send in questions anonymously, and we just ask them to Dr. Finlayson Fife, and she answers them, and we talk a little bit about them. The first question has to do with trauma, sexual trauma that someone may actually not have experienced but may have inherited. So the question reads, can sexual trauma be generational? I have not been abused but my grandmothers on both sides were raped by family members when they were young teens and nothing was ever resolved. One grandma was sure no one would believe her, so she said nothing. I have often felt a kinship to victims of sexual trauma that I can't explain, and professionals I've met with who work with victims of sexual abuse often tell me I react to certain things in a manner that would raise red flags for them. I have also been triggered by things like pap smears and cervical exams. I have no association with the trauma and fear that I feel. Mm -hmm. It really does feel like someone else's unresolved pain at times. Any insight on how to deal with this? Mm. So that's a great question. And um, just to kind of put it in a broader context, I think many women in the culture at large can sometimes feel that the weight of sexual exploitation that they know happens, even if their relationship has nothing to do with sexual exploitation, um, which is to say that women grow up in a culture in which they feel cultural, uh, sexually unsafe, and there's many messages of, of the ways in which women are um, objectified and exploited sexually. And so, and for this person writing it, it sounds like, you know, she has... She's saying, I have no memory of ever being exploited, but I react as if I were. And I think that, you know, absolutely that that the social meanings around sexuality can be very powerful and that they can, you know, even outside of the sexual realm, unresolved issues that 
parents and grandparents have experienced can often be carried by the next generation. You know, whether that's borrowed trauma, borrowed pain, borrowed shame, that's not experienced firsthand by the person, but that the child actually carries the weight of that meaning. And um, that can be particularly powerful in the realm of sexuality. And to the question of like, how do you, how do you deal with it? It's really challenging because I think sometimes the, not only is there the inherited meaning around sexuality, that sexuality is, is unsafe, um, but also there can be the issues of loyalty that get entangled in it. Um, like, do I really have a right to have a different relationship to sexuality? Do I have a right to actually have pleasure and joy in the sexual realm? Because isn't that to be dismissive of what my mother or grandmother went through? Um, you know, do I have a right to, um, in some ways, not carry that burden with them and for them? And, you know, a lot of times when it's sort of unconsciously offered or given, it's just, you know, especially when it's not dealt with in a family and not dealt with openly, those meanings get communicated unwittingly. And people can really carry the sense that they don't really have a right to experience it differently. So I think, you know, how do you, uh, to the question of how do you address it or how do you deal with it, I think that... um there has to be working through the question of whether or not you deserve something different. You know, I know when I was uh, dating to get married, I I was a pretty sensitive kid and pretty aware of uh, the environment around me. And I, I sensed my mom's unhappiness in many ways um, in her marriage and was very attuned to what she managed and was very, and part of the reason I'm probably a therapist is that I was, in some ways, trying to work out what she was trying to work out. I was trying to work it out for her. And I got married when I was almost 30 years old, but I dated my now husband for about three years. And um, I was deeply ambivalent about getting married. And when I was talking to a friend about it, I was saying, you know, I'm so afraid of living out my mother's life. And there's like nothing that was happening in the, my marriage, uh, my uh, relationship that would suggest a repetition of that reality because I was in a very different position than my mom. And, um, and this very insightful friend said to me, I wonder if what you're really worried about is that you're not going to live out your mom's life, that in fact you're going to have a happier and more joyful life than she has had. And I burst into tears. <laughs> and I, I mean, I w had no acknowledgement of this inside of me. In fact, I was so fixated on this, I don't want to repeat it. But that was absolutely what it was. Like, I felt like I was betraying somehow to move on and live differently. And, um, and when I had a chance to really look at that, I recognized that I wasn't going to serve my mother by living in the same world that she'd inhabited I wasn't going to make her life easier in any real way by not allowing myself to gain wisdom that she that she already had and to move forward with it. And 
you know, it's to bless the generations before you by being able to metabolize what you inherited and to find something stronger and to move forward differently. And so um, I think to this person's question, it's it may be around if she's saying this isn't happening, you know, there aren't themes of exploitation or being taken advantage of in my own life. And um, I just need to give myself permission to sort of forge a different relationship to my sexuality um, and to my marriage, if that's the case here, than um, looking at perhaps more consciously making a choice around how to bless her mother and foremother and her her foremothers in this way might be to alter the relationship to sexuality and to lay more claim to it, to not just be in reaction to male sexuality and in particular male exploitation. I find this so fascinating actually because this this idea of absorbing the experiences of others around us and then feeling some sort of responsibility to either relive it or not mm-hmm. improve upon it or not fail it seems so pervasive in our literature in great mm-hmm. movies it's all the story about am i going to do what my father did right. or you know i mean <laughs> luke skywalker exactly <laughs> I mean, right it's just i think it's it's startling to me how unaware we are of how much influence we how much influence our close relatives have on us whether they are aware of it or whether absolutely. we are aware of it it's there a- absolutely and part of being a good parent i think is keeping track of the ways that you ha- you're in a powerful position as a parent and you can give your children your anxieties to manage without even tracking what you're doing if you're not careful um because children want you to be happy with them and they want you to be happy for their sake. And so kids will absorb what you don't deal with uh, without you even knowing it. So, you know, dealing with your own life responsibly, which is precisely to the point that I'm making here, you know, to this person is part of being not just blessing your foremothers, but blessing your, your children. Wow. Um, well, I, I, I'm kind of fascinated by this because I uh, um, I recently listened to a, there's an event that uh, Fiona Gibbons was speaking at, and she talked about generational trauma in terms of mm-hmm. uh, of the of uh, you know ch- church leadership of you know Joseph F. Smith being descended from a family who witnessed their you know patriarch being murdered and mm-hmm. um, and how that can pass on in, in and affect the way we all interact with the world. Um, And, and so it was, it's also fascinating to me because I also just, you know, I think last year I'd heard about this concept of, of things literally being passed along in the DNA. Mm -hmm. Um, Like your body is physically, Mm -hmm. like if some, something traumatic happens to your ancestors, the body Mm -hmm. will actually pass that on. Mm. Um, Usually it's a defense mechanism um, to protect you. Yeah. Um, and so I just didn't know if there was any, if if you have any insight on that as far as sexuality or if that's still pre- a pretty new idea. Yeah, I don't know about anything around the biological realities of it. I don't, I don't know about what kind of research is done on that, although, of course, it makes sense from an adaptive perspective that if there's a, a literal physical threat, that it would be a very adaptive response if, if you could, in reproduction, 
pass down that adaptive response or that knowledge or awareness. Um, but in terms of the psychological transmutation of those, it's, there's, there's a ton of both literature and research um, on those ideas. And, you know, part of the human experience, I mean, you know, deep em- empathy is a very pro-social reality. And being attuned to the emotions and the, aff- you know, the affect and the experience of people around you is a very important part of living together um, communally as we do. But also part of living life well is sorting out what is your responsibility and what isn't. And um, because so often in human experience, that gets all messed up. We tend to be overly responsible for the things that we aren't in fact, that we in fact have no control over and under responsible for what we do have control over. Like to the, the person who wrote this question to that point, you know, like to feel responsible for the trauma of her foremothers, but then in some ways not being distracted by that responsibility in order to not sort out what am I going to do in relationship to my sexuality? That's a more important question because that you have control over. And so, or you have more conscious, you know, you can, you can frame what you're going to do where you can't do anything about what happened to your foremothers. So I think that um, that's part of living life on life's terms and living life well is discerning what you're responsible for and what you aren't, which I think can get convoluted in social connections. The, the passing on stuff through DNA, mm. The, if you look in, if you look around in uh, epigenetics, mm, yeah, right. Incredibly fascinating how a stressful event at a formative stage in someone's life, yeah. either you know the ch- early childhood or early adulthood, even it sticks around through I think two generations right. past the person. So wow, it's yeah, re- it's really phenomenal. So yeah. it's it's there. And if you want to listen to a really cool podcast, look up Radiolab and epigenetics, and mm. it kind of gives you a good overview of how that works. Cool. With with mothering of rats, actually, oh. so, <laughs> <laughs> even better. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's. That's awesome. Here, all right. Uh, I have daughters, and I'm trying to figure out how to teach them not to be ashamed of their bodies. That there are times when it's okay to be seen naked, for example, changing in the locker room during PE or if their mom sees them. It seems that the only time nudity is seen in American culture is when it is sexualized. Women's breasts are sexualized because no one ever sees them used for what they evolved. They were supposed to be evolved to be used for. There doesn't seem to be any normalcy of nudity. It seems that this compounds the hyper-modesty that my daughters have. How do we work around this? Do I have a coffee table book of nudes hanging around the house? I'm not going to trot around the house naked. Uh, I'm a guy, and I don't think after puberty they should be walking around naked either. Should my wife be showering and changing with the bathroom and bedroom doors open so my daughters can see what a normal woman looks like? Et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Okay. We can maybe edit out the last part where <laughs> he gives all those suggestions. So. No, yeah, no, I think that's fine. Um, so let's see. I'm just trying to think of the efficient way to respond to this. But, yeah, I think that uh, the, the person who wrote this question is absolutely right that 
even the kind of hypersexualization, you know, is expresses a kind of anxiety about nudity. Um, because there's a kind of discomfort, either it's like covered up or it's hypersexualized. And he's really striving for a kind of a normalcy of sexuality that is appropriate. So, um, you know, I was listening to something with my son a couple of weeks ago on, I can't remember what it's called, Vsauce, I think. It's a kind of a science show. And he was talking about the concept of modesty. And he was saying that in humans, modesty is uh, basically pervasive. The, you know, covering our private parts, as he put it, is something that for, you know, as far as we know, for the last 100,000 years, pe- humans have always done. And sort of why is that? And his theory was that basically because the period of human development is so long um, relative to other animals, that you want to prolong sexuality and sexual activity so that full development can happen. And clothing and anxiety about sexuality is a sort of adaptive response to that need for the brain to fully develop before reproduction makes sense. And so, you know, modesty is an an inherent thing. Like I remember the period when my children were younger where they really just didn't care if I saw them naked, they're, you know, getting in and out of the tub, they were they didn't care if they saw me naked. And then, you know, age six, seven, eight, you know, just more desire for privacy, more desire for just some ambivalence about it because they're they're moving from that stage of kind of complete openness into more privacy, but it's, it just kind of kicks in like clockwork. They start, you know, become, and then as they move into adolescence, even more so. And I think that having a healthy respect for that inherent privacy and an inherent desire to cover up one's body and sexuality is important. But I think to the, to the writer's point, it can get overdone and in an LDS context can get overplayed because I think we have so much anxiety about sexuality that we, by speaking about the body, basically even in speaking about modesty, we are sort of hypersexualizing ourselves and it doesn't seem to be a lot of room for just embracing of the beauty of the body, the functionality of the body, a kind of healthy integration of our sexuality and of our capacity for eroticism and so, you know, to his question around, you know, should I have a coffee table with, you know, um, you know, nude statues, or I can't remember exactly how he said it, but um, I think that's actually a great idea, <laughs> because to celebrate art that celebrates the human form, that celebrates the beauty of the body, which it is a phenomenal how beautiful human bodies are, and you know, they represent our parents in heaven. I I think there's, it's very healthy, I think, to say, can we sort of acknowledge the human form without sexualizing it and just appreciating its, its, um, its beauty and its strength. Um, And I think by doing that, see, I think mature sexuality is to have a healthy integration of around one's sexual capacity and to use one's sexuality in pro-social ways, depending on the context, whether married, not married, young, old, that you're using your sexuality for good, 
good in whatever context you're in and it blesses your life and blesses the lives of the people that you're in um, some stewardship with. So um, part of doing that is to accept one's sexuality, to accept one's body. And I think that a very powerful way to do that is for one's parents to have integrated their sexuality. This is maybe like saying it's turtles all the way down. Maybe I'm just putting it off a generation here in response to this question. But, you know, if a parent models a basic comfort with their body and a basic comfort with their sexuality, the child, just even similar to the first question, is going to pick up on those meanings and um, is going to internalize that their body is okay, their, their, the, the, their body can be a home for them, not, a, not you know, a kind of uh, anxiety-filled reality that they can't touch or, you know, know. And so I think that's the most powerful way is just the way the parents relate to their own bodies and their sexuality. So I, I think the other um, piece is that, you know, using your child to track. Um, so I think that, yeah, you know, especially when a child is young, I think, not giving messages of anxiety when the child sees you naked or they're naked and and sort of celebrating their bodies and just knowing that you as a parent are comfortable with your body and with their body. But then as they start to get older and they're starting to give cues of wanting more privacy and separation to respect those cues and to that's a way of saying like the body is good and I also respect privacy. Um, and if there's kind of uh, fortuitous nudity, like they see you because they just happen to glance as you're walking from the bathroom into your bedroom or something, to not freak out or, you know, that, that's one thing to say, like, you know, if your child sees you naked, it's not a big deal. But it's another thing to walk around the living room naked and your child, you're sort of assaulting them with, like, they have to deal with it. Um, that's That would be to be offensive. So it's finding that balance between how do you manage your nudity in a respectful way in the context of meaning of the age of the child and how much privacy they want and being willing to track what is healthy for them or what they need and want from you and being able to respect those boundaries. So I think a lot of it is about what gets modeled at home and then being willing and able to sort of acknowledge beauty in the physical form without it being about sex. And the beauty of sexuality without it being about fear and anxiety. I think that's the way to do it. And, you know, I think another way to do it is just comfort with physical affection and comfort with touch is a way of really celebrating the body in non-sexual ways. Here we have a question on, from the website. Um, and just by the way, everyone who's listening, you can also um, just type in questions on the website if you'd like, or you can email. Um, but here we have a question that says, how do single young adult women develop their sexuality? I'm 31, single, dating, and hope to marry in the temple at some point. But I also want to embrace myself as a sexual being and not be afraid of sexuality, particularly if I get married or long term if I don't. How do I do that? Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's a little hard to answer succinctly, but uh, a little bit to the point that I was making earlier um, that, well, in some ways, especially in the church, we see 
you know, marriage is an extremely important rite of passage. And, and that's when sex now becomes legitimate is when it's being expressed towards someone else. And we don't have a, um, what's the way of saying it? We don't have a discourse in the church around ownership of one's sexuality. As you know, that our sexuality is a gift to us from God that is ours. And then we um, figure out how to be in a responsible relationship to that gift and to use it responsibly in our lives. I think that would be a much more productive framing of our sexuality rather than the idea that your sexuality belongs to your future spouse. And um, because not only is that complicated for singlehood, however long that lasts, it's complicated for marriage. And um, very quickly, when you feel like your spouse's genitals half belong to you, <laughs> uh, desire breaks down very quickly. Or if you think your spouse thinks they own your body or they should have you know, access to it because you're now married to them, desire breaks down very quickly. So I think it's a problematic model, not just for singles, but for marrieds alike. Um, when you see it, you know, now it's challenging when you are in a, when you believe in the law of chastity and you want to live within the frame of sexual conservatism and you don't have a legitimate sexual outlet to figure out what does it mean to have a healthy relationship to my sexuality. Um, but what I would define as healthy is an embracing, well, maybe define it in two ways. One is to be embracing of its existence because in my dissertation research, the women who did well when they were that transitioned very comfortably into marriage saw their sexuality as an exciting and a good thing. They saw it as a gift from God. They saw it as a, um, a power that they had that they were happy about, even though they made decisions around being in a restricted relationship to their sexuality until they got married. But it wasn't about the sexuality itself being a problem. It was about I'm asserting a choice. The people that did the very best really saw it as I'm asserting a choice around how I'm going to relate to this part of myself. It's not um, something I have to do for to get the approval of a future spouse. It's not shameful that I have sexual desire, but I want to live by the law of chastity and I want to live within, uh, you know, to express my sexuality in its fullest form in the context of marriage. And therefore, I'm choosing for a period to be in a restricted relationship to my sexuality. Those women did the best because it was very agentic. It was a very um, choice-based framing and they didn't shame the desire or the capacity. I think a much more problematic frame is when we shame the feelings, shame the desire, where, where we feel anxiety about the fact that we're even experiencing it. And I think that we give that message very much to our adolescents, and then we sort of go into denial with, I think, young single adults, that their sexuality even exists in some ways. <laughs> we kind of, I think we don't really want to deal with it or address it, and just hope that they'll hurry and get married. Um, um, instead of thinking about how do you navigate your sexuality in a responsible way as an adult who's not in a marriage. And I think that the second part of my response is figuring out what do I believe 
is the best, if I'm in an accepting relationship of my sexuality, but as this person says in her question, you know, I want to get married in the temple, I want to be in a committed relationship at some point, what do I think is the is the relationship I want to have with myself, I need to assert a choice around how I'm going to relate to this part of myself in the interim. And I think there's believing members of the church who have said, I think it's healthier for me, not just physically, but psychologically for me to touch myself and to be, um, oh, you know, to cultivate my own eroticism um, as a single person and others who have felt like I, I, I don't feel good about doing that, and so I won't do it. But in either case, to assert a, a deliberate choice that this is what I believe is the right thing for me to do relative to my sexuality, given that I don't know if I'll ever marry, I don't know, but this is what I believe is the right thing in this context, that choice assertion is very, very important for psychological well-being and uh, for sexual agency whatever, you know, whether single or at some point married. And so um, I think people would assert different choices in that, but determining what's the, I think the question is, what do I believe is the healthiest way uh, to relate to my sexuality during this period? What do I believe is going to bless my life and the life of a future uh, partner and how I, and, you know, my relationship to God in this current time and what do I believe, you know, what can I stand by inside of myself? And it's hard because I think many people that are single are kind of looking to the church to tell them in some ways and they're sort of looking. Many people want a different reality so they don't have to face those questions. And I think they're hard questions, but I think people are healthier when they recognize I don't have what I want right now. Um, and in the discrepancy between what I want and what I have, what do I believe is the most um, healthy and um, best thing to do for my well-being and for the future well-being of a relationship in terms of how I relate to this part of myself. But the choice is everything. The, the self-assertion is very important. Um, and actually what strikes me as so interesting in that is that even if you're making, you know, you know, the choice quote you're supposed to, um, mm -hmm. is that with that perspective, it seems to add a, there's a lot more power to the sexuality. Absolutely. And Absolutely. yeah, and it made me think how for so long growing up in young women's, it was like you were taught in a way to be scared of that power. That's right. Um, scared of that, that power that could make men want you or <laughs> scared of that power that could make you like the women of the world. Yes. And I just find that such a fascinating perspective that even though the choice is still the same choice, um, you can find a way to make that where sexuality is actually a means of personal power as opposed to hiding from it. Absolutely. I think that's, you know, and life is about, you know, how do you deal with the discrepancy between what you want and what you have? And everybody has to deal with that discrepancy to some degree. It's not like you get married and, and then you're having sex, if, as married people will attest, that you're having sex exactly when you want it um, and how you want it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you still in the context of marriage are having to navigate what is what is the most loving and responsible way to be in relationship to my sexuality and to this other person. 
and it's about assertion of choices, um, you know, often within realities that are less than optimal. And that's kind of what it is to live life. And um, I think in the church, we often are look to, you know, authority in a sense to kind of grat- uh, rat- ratify our choices and to give us a, a kind of an out around that responsibility. I, I think, though, the healthy way to live is to think about, um, again, this issue of, of how do I live the most responsibly in my current context and how do I um, live in the stewardship of my sexuality in the best way? Awesome. Anything to add, Brian? I feel like I've sort of, uh, through life, kind of fallen in that same pattern of, okay, I don't like the way I'm feeling or thinking about item A, so I'm going to go find someone that agrees with how I feel about mm-hmm. it. And if I can't find that, which searching mm-hmm. on LDS.org about sex and finding <laughs> positive stuff uh-huh. doesn't yield a whole lot. <laughs> uh, so if I can't find it, then I'm like, oh, am I wrong? Am I being led by the devil? Or, you know, uh-huh. you have all sorts of thoughts. And, uh-huh. you know, I found it interesting that the thing that you kept pointing to was agency. Yes. And, and how that... Um, you know, it's not just like some would say you just choose whatever you like and you do whatever you want. It's right. that assertion and taking taking responsibility of your choices and owning them is in a lot of ways very freeing. Absolutely. And it's it's a hard step to take. Absolutely. Because, you know, yeah, in my dissertation subjects, it was the women who made a very conscious choice. To, they didn't just live the law of chastity because they thought they had to, and especially, you know, thought they had to because they wanted to keep themselves desirable for some future man. It was the women who saw it as like, look, I'm, I'm choosing this. I believe it's the best thing for me. But it was about forging a relationship to their sexuality and their integrity, or another way of saying it, to their relationship to God. And it, and it was, it was empowering, even though it meant some sacrifice. It wasn't a debilitating sacrifice. It was a sacrifice that made them stronger and um, because it was based in their integrity. So I think it's extremely important in human functioning, this issue of choice and self, self-assertion within it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again, Jennifer. Uh, it's, it's always fun. My pleasure. And listeners, remember that you can also ask questions uh, anonymously. Either leave them on the website, or we should have the email that you can email uh, Dr. Finlayson Fife at. So thank you. Thank you. All right, wonderful. So, so first of all, I wanted to say thank you again to Dr. Finlayson Fife for for coming on to Rational Faith. That was so interesting. I'm always fascinated by hearing these different responses because we all have so many different questions about these things. It's really, uh, really neat to be able to have this venue to be able to explore things. Uh, um, so one of the things before we end the episode, I wanted to talk about a cool event that is coming up. And it, it kind of relates to the last question. Sunstone is providing a conference, uh, which is called Sunstone Single. And it's the Borderlands um, conference. And that's going to be on December 20th. That, that, it's going to be at 1 o'clock to 5 p.m. And um, you can go ahead and register for it at, the, at sunstone.org. So just go to our, our blog 
to the show notes for this episode, and then you can sign up there. But it's going to be really cool. That um, Elna Baker is going to be there, Christine Haglin, John Larson, um, and, and various other individuals. And I, I think it will be a really cool event. I will be there. So if you listen to the podcast, definitely come and, and find me and say hi as well. But, but I, I'm really excited about it and just wanted to announce it there. Excellent. That's a, that sounds like a fun event. So, uh, so that's that's great stuff. So, listeners, if that if that uh, sounds interesting to you, you know, jump over there and look into it. Yeah, and I didn't mention that, but but this is an event in Utah, so of course only some of us will get to go. But but if you can <laughs> jump over try, there, if you are within reasonable driving distance. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we will see you next week. We're going to have a little Christmas podcast episode, so look forward to that. All right, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.